Lord. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mark. Um, my name is Glenn, but I'm an alcoholic. Uh, haven't the speakers been great this weekend so far? Uh, I love Jimmy on Thursday night, and then uh, Francine finally made it here. Francine's here. We can start, y'all. Um, she just she just found her seat, and then Jimmy's here. Uh, 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 Larry, what, uh, well, that's bad. Larry's here, and uh, Larry and I both know some people from uh, Louisville together, and uh, and I have had a fantastic time listening to them. Looking forward to hearing Michael tonight and Don tomorrow, uh, and you guys have been absolutely awesome. And I'm here to lower that standard. <laughs> you, you think I'm kidding? I am nervous as a long-tailed cat in a rocking chair contest. I really want you guys to like me. I don't know if it shows or not. But, uh, um, but uh, the, the voices did fail to make one announcement. Um, they, they reminded me just a second ago, they failed to make one announcement. Uh, the host committee of this year's conference has asked if you see any questionable behavior from anyone here this weekend, please report it to a host committee member. Thank you. And... Uh, Um, and before she stole my line, I was going to say, uh, if you see any questionable behavior, let me know too, because I want to watch. <laughs> um, Kitty Lou's here. Kitty Lou is sitting about halfway back in the half measure section. And uh, I'll hear about that one for years to come. Um, she uh, she is my patron saint of Memphis AA. Whenever I'd come to Memphis uh, uh, when I was first getting sober, they say we hear when we hear and we see when we see. And I heard one thing and I saw one thing. I heard Frog's voice and I, heard, and I saw Kitty Lou's eyes. I remember standing at the Cook Convention Center and this little four-foot-nothing gray-headed old lady stared a hole straight through me all the way across that room. And that was her. And, and I, want, I want to tell you that I love you. And that young lady, I've had the honor of her speaking at probably three or four of my birthdays throughout the years, and I, and I want to tell you that I love you. And I've called her many a day, many a day crying, you know, whining and complaining about you sober alcoholic women. <laughs> I called her a few months ago, and, uh, and I said, uh, well, I heard they got a really good lineup of speakers for this year's Bluff City Conference. And um, I said, they've even got a guy speaking from Tennessee. And she said, would that be you? I said, yes. And she said, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Pop my bubble just like that. And I said, what do you mean it doesn't matter? She said, Glenn, I want to ask you a question. How long have you been sober? Um, I said, about 14 years. And she said, how many speakers have you heard? And I said, I don't know, maybe a couple of thousand. And she said, how many of those speakers do you remember? And I said, I don't know, maybe 15 or 20 of them. She said, see, it doesn't matter. <laughs> uh, 
if I ever need a dose of humility, all I've got to do is come down to Memphis and go hit up Kitty Lou over her home group or call her on the phone. I'm guaranteed to get a, to get a good shot at that. But that's all right. I got a joke on her. Um, and I and I've, I've 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 been given permission to tell this story. I asked her the other day in the hospitality room. She can't go back on me now. Um, Kitty Lou, y'all don't know this, but she told me she's she told me that I'm the only one she told. Them. I felt real special about that. Um, she lost one of her little dogs uh, last year. You know, she's got a couple little dogs. And um, she just, she started feeling really, really lonely and all this kind of stuff. So she went to the pet store. She's going to buy a new pet to replace it so she wouldn't feel as lonely. And uh, so she looks over and, and she, she sees this frog in one of those little cages. And frog looks up at her and says, buy me and take me home. And I guarantee you won't regret it. So uh, she looks at him and... and, and Frog says, I promise you won't regret it. So anyway, she buys the frog, takes him, uh, puts him in the car. On the way home, she looks over in the box, and the, fro- and the frog says, kiss me. <laughs> says, kiss me, you won't regret it. So a little bit reluctant, she leans over and gives it a real little quick peck. And all of a sudden, he transforms into this really good-looking, fine, handsome, young prince. And uh, and this prince leans over and kisses Kitty Lou on the cheek. You know what she turned into? First motel she could find. No kidding, y'all. Her hair just turned brown back there. And y'all, and, uh, and Mark was right. Mark and I have had the privilege of getting to know each other over the year. When I just had to get out of Jackson and stuff was going on too much up there, I'd say, listen, man, if you've got a couch available, and he said, you know I do. And I'd do the same thing. He said, listen, I've got to get out of Memphis tonight. I said, you know where I live. My house is your house. And, uh, and we were able to do this deal over the last year or so, however long it's been. But uh, I don't, me and Mark did a fifth step not too long ago, and I've got permission to tell this joke because I asked him. Uh, Mark was having problems. He met a nice newcomer. I mean, met a nice girl. And, um, and, and it was stressing him out just a little bit. And uh, he, he came up and he said, Glenn, I found myself unable to perform. <laughs> well, I said, well, what did you do? He said, well, I went to the doctor. And uh, said, uh, me and my girlfriend went to the doctor. And, and the doctor said, well, it's no problem. I'll just give you some Viagra and, and you guys can go on your merry way. And he said, well, you know, Viagra, isn't that for the older crowd, uh, kind of older crowd? Have you got anything different? The doctor kind of scratched his head and said, well, we've got an experimental new procedure. What we do is we take the muscles from an elephant's trunk Bear with me now. We, we take the muscles from an elephant's trunk and we kind of work with them and we've had some success in this area. And uh, so he looked at his girlfriend thinking, you know, I, I've got to do something. She, she looked at him thinking, yeah, you're right, you do. 
So they said, all right, doctor, let's do it. So they had the operation, went through success. A couple months later, go back to the doctor, get the green light to try this stuff out. So they go to a nice little quaint restaurant here in Memphis, candle lights on the table, low dim light, piano music soft playing in the background, real, real romantic. And they're sitting there staring Google-eyed at each other like we do, you know, and, and all of a sudden this big monstrosity comes up from under Mark's side of the table, reaches up, grabs a roll, and disappears. <laughs> Well, his girlfriend likes this. She's impressed. And, uh, and she said, honey, can you do that again? And he said, baby, maybe I could, but I don't know if I could fit another roll up my ass. Ain't it good to laugh in sobriety, y'all? Ain't it good? That's right. That's right. It's good to laugh. Um, I want to get out of myself for just a second, quit telling jokes for a little bit. Uh, I want to take a real quick survey of the audience. Um, real quick, uh, how many, just the guys, guys only, no girls this time, how many guys only have one year of sobriety or less? Hands up real high. If nobody's told you today that somebody, if nobody's told you today that they love you, some, somebody might. I mean, you know. <laughs> All right, girls, real quick, just the girls this time, no guys. How many girls have one year of sobriety or less? Hands up, real high. Real high. See me at this meeting. <laughs> That's right. Uh, we're going to get spiritual. That's right. That's right. Uh, yeah, they've got a new book out. It's bound to be approved, conference approved any minute. It says, let go and let Glenn. That's right. And the next one's going to be as Glenn sees it. So see me at this meeting. Um, the, the host committee has been absolutely awesome. Uh, the speaker has been absolutely awesome. And I, I really appreciate what Francine said last night. It, it's a, truly an honor to be asked to be anywhere in Alcoholics Anonymous until right now. Right now. Because the butterflies in my, in my stomach feel more like 747s. And, um, but anyway, I, I caught my first resentment when I was three years old. Um, my mother and my father sat me down at our kitchen table, and uh, they said, we're going to have a baby. Now, I didn't know this, but this is what they told me later on. A typical three-year-old response is nothing we would normally expect. I asked them, I said, well, if we don't like it, can we take it back and get our money back? <laughs> and uh, you know, I didn't know what was going to happen, but, you know, that's insane to cop a, a resentment at three years old. But that's just who I was. I mean, that is insane. Kind of reminds me of the story, uh, the guy goes into a bar and orders a shot of whiskey. Bartender pours him a shot and the guy hands it to the guy and the guy pushes it to the side. This just drives the bartender crazy. He tries to go on and do his job and 
A little bit later, the guy calls the bartender over and says, listen, can I get another shot of whiskey? So the bartender pours him the shot of whiskey, hands it to him, and he just knocks it back. Well, this just flies all over the bartender. He does not understand this at all, just really starts eating his lunch, so to speak. And uh, he tries to go do his job. A few minutes later, he cannot stand it. So he goes back to the other guy and says, listen, I want to ask you a question. You ordered two shots a while ago, but you pushed the first one aside. What's up with that? He said, well, listen, I've been going to these AA meetings. They told me, whatever I do, don't take that first drink. <laughs> so, uh, and, and that's how insane I was at three years old. You know, resentful. If my little sister came along, I immediately became a bad brother. And I beat the hell out of her every chance I got. I mean... And I didn't know I didn't know anything about sibling rivalry. I didn't know. I didn't know. Uh, my little sister came along. I immediately became a bad brother and, and was horrible to her. Uh, we'd be at my babysitter's house and we'd uh, she'd give us a quarter and you get penny candy back then. You get one piece of candy for a penny. So we'd go to the store and, and they'd say, make sure your sister gets some candy. So I'd come back with about 22 pieces of candy. She'd come back with three, and that was common for me. That, that was common. And uh, one of the things I get to do uh, as a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous that came to me uh, through help with a good friend, uh, it came to me that one of the things I need to do is try to be a good brother. Try to be a good brother. I asked myself the question earlier this year, and I swear to you, as the Lord, the Lord is my witness, I had never thought about this. I wonder what kind of sister my brother wanted. Whatever it was, I wasn't him. Not the funny guy that stands here before you. You know, not the guy that stands here with, right now I've got one thing on my mind. You know, right as I stand here, right now, Lord, God is my witness, I've got one thing on my mind. Do I look okay? That was supposed to go over better than that, y'all, so. All right, all right. Um, but in all honesty, I want to get out of myself real quick. And um, I was walking around in one of the... Um, merchandise um, rooms that I saw and I happened to peek down and I saw something and I immediately knew what God was telling me. See, one of the things that I get to do in Alcoholics Anonymous as, as a result of being a bad brother back then is I got to try to be a safe, older male for the young girls that come into meetings in my town. And, uh, and uh, Francis says if you've got a problem with, with middle-aged ladies who can't control their emotions, tough. And, uh, and if you can't, if you've got a problem with 36-year-old man who can't control his emotions, well, my God, we're in trouble. But uh, there's been a lady, young lady that has been uh, coming to meetings not long, and uh, and I call her my little sister in sobriety, and she's real special to me, and uh, and I got to get out of myself for a little bit, and. Uh, She's 15 years old. And just this past week, she celebrated one month of sobriety. And, uh, and I took her home from the meeting that night, and she got out of the car. And uh, I looked over at her, and I said, I sure am proud of you. And it was like somebody had handed her a million dollars. And uh, 
when I saw this right here, I knew what it was, and I knew what my God was doing in my life. And it would be my honor if this young lady would come up and pick up a one-month medallion at 15 years old. She has shown me more courage in the last month than it takes for me to stand up here ten times. Carla, come get this medallion. I think it takes a whole hell of a lot of courage to try to get sober at 15 years old. Because at 15 years old, I had my head so far up my rear, all I saw was, was darkness. Uh, and I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you. I remember my first AA birthday, my mother stood up at the podium like this in front of a packed house in my home group, and my mother said, I'm proud of you. And nobody had told me they were proud of me for about five years before I got the Alcoholics Anonymous. And I am so proud of you and I love you. Oh, Lord. Am I doing okay? All right, all right. Um, I come from a racing family. Uh, my father raced when I was a kid, and uh, and it, it was a source of shame, and it was a source of a whole lot of love when I was growing up. Um, it was a source of love because, man, it was awesome to be at that racetrack and be around all those race cars and all that power and stuff. And I learned through inventory that my father was one of my heroes growing up because he raced cars. And I love that. And I also learned that it was a source of shame for me because we were the only family on our block that had a race car. And, and I mean, y'all told me I was not unique when I got here. Watch this test right here. How many of y'all come from a racing family? Grew up around it? Me and two more. That's it. And I have asked people that question from Portland to West Palm Beach, from Louisville to San Diego, and y'all, I believe, are the 16th and 17th people that have, that have raised their hands. So I am unique. Um, but uh, but uh, it was a source of shame for me because nobody else on our block raced cars. I mean, we were the family that, you know, I'm sorry, if anybody else on your family raced race cars and stuff like that. We were the family working on our race cars 7 o'clock in the morning on Sunday morning while all the rest of y'all were still asleep. And uh, we were the family on our block when, you know, the cops were getting called down for disturbing the peace and all that kind of stuff, and my father would have to be nice and polite uh, and all those kind of things, and which was hard for him. Um, and, and so it was a bit of a source of shame for me. And, uh, and I loved it, and I didn't love it. And, and, you know, I, did, I grew up knowing that I was different from people. Nobody else on our, on our block raced. None of the other kids in my school's father raced. 
So I felt apart from, and I felt, I felt set aside. Y'all remember I'd caught this resentment at three years old. I felt abandoned by my mother and father. They took all that attention that they were given to a selfish and self-centered three-year-old, and they heaped it on my little sister, and they stole my thunder. They stole my thunder. And at three years old, my gods left me. I learned through inventory later on that when I was a kid, I looked up out of that crib and I saw two people staring over that crib. They immediately became my gods. And it's been a long time in sobriety, a long time in sobriety and a lot of tears for those two people to become human. A long time. And, uh, and today I love my father. I love my father for who he is not who he's not. See, my father drank when I was young, and I never knew who he was when he was drinking. I didn't know if he was going to be that 800-pound romping, stomping gorilla roaring through, the to- roaring through the house like a tornado. Or I didn't know if he was going to be that loving, doting father that would come in and give you a hug and kiss you and, and put you to bed and, and read you a good night story. I didn't know who he was going to be. I don't know if he's an alcoholic to this day. But I hope he hears this tape one of these days. I want to tell him, Dad, I'm proud to be your son. Because I blamed him for everything. It was his fault. It was his fault. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and if he ever hears this tape, I want to say, Dear God, Dad, I forgive you. Please forgive me for the things that I did. And I want to tell my mother, if she ever hears this tape, that, Dear God, I love you so much. And Kayla's met my mother before, and, and um, she just wants her son to be okay. That's all. That's all. Um, I rocked along as a kid. I was about 15 years old. Somebody passed a, a bottle of whiskey my way and said, do you want to try this? I said, well, sure. You know, I wanted to fit in. And not long after that, uh, they passed some marijuana my way and said, do you want to smoke this? And I said, well, sure, because I wanted to fit in. And uh, that was about 15 when I did it. And I was about 15 when I discovered sex. Yeah. <laughs> now, I was about 18 when I found out you could have sex with somebody. <laughs> yeah. You know, we we came in here a little bit earlier, and the Alanons had just left their whole mess all over the place. Um, I guess they were trying to get even. You know how you can tell when an alcoholic and an Al-Anon are out on their second date, can't you? There's a U-Haul in the driveway. <laughs> you know how an Al-Anon has sex with you, don't you? They just attach and let you screw yourself. <laughs> It took her a little bit longer than it did the rest of us, but that's all right. 
you, you know how you can tell when you're not when you're at an Al-Anon meeting, don't you? You spill your coffee now. I'll get up to clean it up. <laughs> but, uh, I remember. I remember what uh, alcohol and drugs did for me in the beginning. I remember sitting in my mother and my father's house, sitting in my room. My little sister's in her room yelling and screaming and crying because I don't know what I've done, but I've, I've probably been beating hell out of her, beating hell out of her again. Uh, my mother and my father are in their room. They're yelling and screaming at each other, trying to blame it, trying to blame one another. Um, and, and that's normal in our household. Chaos is familiar to me. I come from chaos. Hell, I was born at Dysfunction Junction. I mean, that's, that's the truth about me. But uh, I remember sitting there at 15 years old listening to Led Zeppelin. A couple of people identifying with that. And, uh, and that's when the dam broke for me. 15 years old, sitting there in that easy chair. It's one of the old drunk chairs. You sit in it, you, you sit down in it, and you're sitting like this, and by the end of the night, you're sitting about like this in it. And, and uh, you just kind of become part of the upholstery in, in the chair. And, uh, and for the first time in my life, for the first time in my life, everything was okay just the way it was. It was okay that my little sister's yelling and screaming and crying. It was okay that my mother and father are yelling and screaming and crying and blaming each other. It's okay that the alley dog's barking. It's okay that the alley cat's meowing. Whatever's going on, it's just okay inside my skin. And where I came from, feeling abandoned, feeling less than, feeling like I didn't fit in. Like Bill talks about on page one of his story, I felt like I was a part of life at last. I identified with that when I read it because I felt like I was a part from life growing up all my life. That was true for me. Um, but whiskey and, booze, whiskey and dope took that away from me. And I felt a part of. Uh, I became rich. Uh, I became good-looking. I became smart. I became bulletproof. And at times, I became invisible. You know. You know. And that was the truth to me. And that's what it did for me. It wasn't long after that that it started doing stuff to me. It started asking me to give it things. It started asking it for my relationship with my family. And I said, you can have it. It started asking me for any kind of money that I'd made, for any kind of job that I had, and I said, take it. And it damn near asked me for my life. And God worked through me and said, wait a minute. Hang on. Um, I don't, know about, I don't know about you guys, but uh, drinking makes you think about stuff. Uh, made me think about getting a job one time. Uh, so I had this little job, and uh, here's what a typical Friday for me was, you know, working this little job. 
I get paid on Friday afternoon, all right? I got two bills that I got to pay immediately as soon as I get off work. I got to pay the dope man. I got to pay my bar tab. Two bills, right? Two bills. I got to pay those two bills. And uh, so I'll go pay those two bills, and whatever I'm left with, that's what I've got to make it through that Friday night with. And a typical Friday night for me was is uh, go go buy a $25 bag of marijuana, a uh, bag of that which was a lot of dope in the early 1980s. Uh, go buy a case of beer and be scraping it off the floorboard of the car to get nickels and dimes to put $2 worth of gas in the car. And see, I was insane because I expected to ride around all night long on $2 worth of gas in the car. <laughs> and, 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 you know, that, that's just the truth of it. Um, I'm not a social drinker. My mother is a social drinker, and I can't stand it. I have seen her start a drink and nurse the same one for hours. That's alcohol abuse to me. I've seen her start one, finish that one, maybe start another one, and leave some in the bottle. So needless to say, whenever I was drinking, I kind of followed my mother around if she was going somewhere and uh, finished hers off, finished anybody else's off I could get my hands on too. But uh, I asked my mother, I said, what happens to you when you drink one time? Uh, when you, uh, I asked her one time, what happens to you when you drink? And she said, well, I kind of loosen up a little bit. Uh, I kind of get a woozy, out-of-control feeling going on, and, 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 and I just feel kind of good. I said, okay. And uh, I said, what then? And she said, I don't want any more. It's exactly at that point that separates the social drinker from the full-blown chronic alcoholic like me. Because when I get that little loosey, out of control feeling, loosened up, get the, get the body flowing and all that kind of stuff on the dance floor, all this kind of, whatever, uh, that's exactly when I want all I can get my hands on. Every one of them. If I can go by and beg, borrow, steal, sell my soul to the devil for whatever, I, whatever I've got to do, that's exactly what I'm willing to do to get another one. They told me once too many thousands aren't enough, and if you've never heard that, I hope you can stay here long enough to identify with that because I did. I'm not an alcoholic because I drank too much. The people told me I drank too much, I knew they didn't know. There's no way they knew. I'm not an alcoholic because I drank too much. I'm an alcoholic because I never got enough. And that's the truth about me. Uh, I'm a blackout driver. It's more fun that way. People ask you what you did night four. I don't know. And, uh, and you love finding out later that you had fun. I mean, uh, yeah, that's all right. But uh, I remember one night, I hate coming to in a car wreck. Um, came to in a car wreck one time. I wrecked the only car I had. It was dark, late one night, and, and, and I remember that feeling, if I can just make it home. Y'all remember that feeling, if I can just make it home. Uh, well, blacked out that night and uh, wrecked my car. And, you know, cars don't drive too well when they're wrapped around trees. I didn't know that. Um, anyway, so the car won't move, and I just God, just getting aggravated. You know how you just get aggravated when you're drunk? It's God. 
So anyway, so I start taking off walking. And I realize I'm probably about two miles from home. So I start taking off walking, and, and, and all of a sudden I realize I've got a bad headache. So I reach up, grab my hair, and I don't know what I'm going to do. And I grab my hair, and, and I look down at my hand, and my hand is covered in blood. And I look down at the clothes I'm wearing, and, I, and my shirt is covered in blood, and, I, and I've got on a pair of pants, and the front of them is covered in blood. I immediately copped a resentment. It was not a resentment that I was drunk again. It was not a resentment that I had wrecked my only car, you know, been in another car wreck. Uh, I copped a resentment because I ruined a nice white shirt and a nice white pair of pinstripe pants. Because Miami Vice was hot at the time, and this is what I was wearing. Uh, don't you hate car wrecks when you're drunk? I mean, the last time I was at the emergency room after one of those drunk car wrecks, um, they had, I had tubes sticking in each arm and one up, well, you know, uh, one going up the backside and, and all this kind of I didn't know if I, I didn't know if I was in the emergency room for, or if I was at Jiffy Lube. <laughs> and, uh, and that's the truth. Um, and I drank, smoked dope, snorted cocaine every chance I could. Every chance I could. See, my mother, when she goes out and has one, maybe two, she doesn't sit and think about the next time she's going to have maybe one, possibly two. When I go have one, I think about it all day long. That's all I think about. I don't think about anything else. Our book says we have a physical craving couple, uh, couple with a mental obsession. Obsession, one of the descriptions for me is, is an obsession is something that will push out every other thought in your mind. And that's true for me. Because when I drink, that's all I think about. I don't think about nothing else. And my body says, you better go get another one. And, and you know, that's the truth about me. And the truth about me is, is I had my last one chasing my first one. That's the truth about me. Uh, you know, I heard people talk about being an alcoholic. I knew I wasn't an alcoholic. No way I was an alcoholic. My, my conception of an alcoholic was a three-coat-wearing, piggly-wiggly, cart-pushing bum that lived under the bridge. I wasn't that. I was sleeping in my car on top of the bridge. <laughs> wasn't an alcoholic. Couldn't be. Um, and the what happened for me is I got a DUI in September of 1987. And, you know, that may not impress some of the old-timers. Well, the truth about me is I'm guilty of a thousand DUIs, and I've been caught one time. This is a disease of perception. That's the truth about me. I have no idea how many times my God placed his hand over my car and saw fit that I made it home when the only thing I was when the only thing I was thinking if I can just make it home one more night. Uh, well, I got a DUI in September 1987 and I rear into the back of this guy's little small pickup truck and I did about $140 worth of damage to that pickup truck, and I paid that guy back. I have no idea how I paid that guy back drunk, but I paid him back. Um, but anyway, uh, I remember when that cop put those handcuffs on my hand, I had a spiritual experience. 
I became a nice guy. <laughs> and uh, I vaguely sensed I wasn't being too smart about that. But, uh, but I, remember that, I remember that cop telling me, Miss Wilford, we're taking you to jail for DWI. It was DWI back then, it wasn't DUI. We're taking you to jail for DWI. And something ran across the front of my little pea brain that said, this is not supposed to be happening to me. Doesn't he know who I am? I mean, my father, I grew up in a racing family. I was driving the family's race car at the racetrack at 15 years old before I ever had a driver's license. You know, but it's hard to explain your credentials when you're in handcuffs. Um, but I remember that happening. And, uh, and that guy, that cop set me in the back of that police car. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I know my God works in my life. He's given me the courage to stand up here today and to fight through my own fears, fight through my, all of my insecurities that say, Glenn, you don't deserve to be up there. And he's given me the courage to do that. And I know my God worked in my life drunk, and I know he works in my life sober. Because what happened that night, from where I'm standing at this podium just about to the front of this hotel, my grandmother was sitting in a bar, and she saw that DWI happen, and she saw that car wreck. And she sent somebody out of that bar to try to talk that cop out of taking me to jail that night. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I spent my drinking and my drugging career about three steps ahead of complete and total disaster. I'm grateful that, God, that, that my God was working in that cop's life that night and, and got that guy to do his job and take me to jail because it's where I needed to be that night to protect you from me because I was a tornado roaring through your life. And I remember going to jail that night, and uh, you know, he took me to jail. And to illustrate even further that God was working in that cop's life, I saw that cop in a bar about a month later, and he said, don't go down such and such road down here in Jackson because the cops have a roadblock set up. How about that? God using a policeman to work in my life to keep me out of another scrape, three steps ahead of complete and utter disaster. Uh, well, back then they made, the go, made, they made you go to DUI school or DWI school. I have a resentment over, uh, over DWI school to this day. I thought they were going to teach me how to drive drunk. <laughs> well, it was an all-day class, and uh, the woman teaching the class that day was armed with the facts about herself. They made us take a little test at the end of the class, a little 20-question test. had crazy questions on it, like, um, has drinking caused you problems with your family? Hell no, they kicked me out a long time ago. <laughs> has drinking caused you problems on the job? No, I can't keep a job. That doesn't, that doesn't bother me. Mm -mm. I remember taking that test and about halfway through that test, I'm realizing I'm answering yes to almost every question on this test. And uh, after the class was over that day, the, uh, the instructor, instructor for the day, she, uh, she sent, uh, gave everybody their little certificate, you know, like DUI school certificate, you know, something to be proud of. <laughs> and... Uh, um, she asked a few of us to kind of hang around after, after class was over. And I was one of them. And I thought I must have been one of the star students, so, you know. 
So uh, she kind of called us all, she kind of called us one by one into her office. And I remember when she called me in there, um, she said, Glenn, from what you've shown me on this test, uh, you might be an alcoholic. She, see, she was armed with the facts about herself. And the old-timers like Kitty Loon Frog and, and, and people like that and the people up in my hometown, they told me if you can spot it, you've got it. She had it so she could spot it. She was armed with the facts about herself. And she talked me into, uh, she, she said, listen, there, there's a 6 o'clock and there's an 8 o'clock meeting tonight over here at this group. Why don't you go? And I said, I'll go to the 8 o'clock meeting. She said, why don't you go to the 6? Old timers like Charlie told me uh, that their best thinking got them to Alcoholics Anonymous. I remember that day real well because my best thinking almost didn't get me to Alcoholics Anonymous. Because on that day, I thought I had a choice. Well, I don't know why, but I did what the woman told me to do. I went to the 6 o'clock meeting. I remember two things about that meeting. There was a little granddaddy long-legged spider crawling around in that meeting. I wasn't seeing stuff. I promised it was, it was not hallucinating. My first sponsor said that spider needed a meeting that day. Leave him alone. So if you're sitting in a meeting and you see some ants or you see a spider or see a bird fly through, they need a meeting, leave them alone. And... Uh, and a fellow came up to me after the meeting and he stuck his hand out and he said, Glenn, keep coming back. And I had no idea why he did that for a long time. But upon reflection and upon a lot of inventories, I know why he did that. Why that I know why he did it and I know why it stuck out in my life. It stuck out in my life that day because nobody had told me to come back anywhere for about five years before I staggered through these doors. I believe three were three of the most important words in Alcoholics Anonymous we can say are keep coming back. Because when there's no way in hell I'll ever hear I love you when I'm still drinking and I'm still doing drugs. There's no way I could have heard that. I heard that fellow tell me, keep coming back. See, what I brought to the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous after, after inventory and inventory, I finally found out what I brought to you. It was not a pretty sight. What happened was is I felt horribly guilty about the things that I had done. And I felt ashamed of who I was. And that's what I brought to you. And you gave me the three most important words I believe in all of Alcoholics Anonymous. You told me, keep coming back. And I'm so grateful for you. And that guy's still sober today because of me. <laughs> you know, that's probably the meeting that he decided to stick around right there. Uh, I, I bounced in and around AA meetings for, I don't know, six, eight months. And... Uh, one, two, three, drink, one, two, three, drink, one, two, three, drink. And I just, I was not getting the program. So uh, I had a sponsor at the time. He didn't, he didn't fire me because I drank. He still let me make those midnight suicide calls and all that kind of stuff. And uh, finally he said, Glenn, you know, maybe, maybe you ought to go to treatment. Maybe you ought to go to treatment. And, 
so I, I decided, okay, I'm going to go in here and I'm going to check myself in and have a little treatment and, you know, be a new man after I'm done. Well, I have a love-hate relationship with treatment today. Um, one thing I hate about treatment, they're not real fashion conscious in treatment. <laughs> Don't they realize how hard it is to pick up girls with one of those green paper gowns on? And if you're like me, if you're one of those speed freaks, you just kind of vibrate all over the floor and stuff, and they have to chase you down with those little booties on and all that kind of stuff. But uh, one of the things I hate about treatment, I hated awards day. I don't know if they have awards day in y'all's treatment. So they had awards day where they gave you those little things that they put on your name tag and all this kind of stuff. They had awards day. First, first awards day I was there, they gave me the sock award. Pissed me off. Um, they made me tie a so- stuff a sock tied around my boot, uh, tied around my my belt loop, and wear it around for a week. Told me I couldn't keep all my shit in one sock, so that's, that's what it was. They gave me the jailhouse lawyer's award. Y'all know what that is, don't you? That's the guy sitting in the cell next to you telling you how to get out. <laughs> they gave it to me, and uh, boy, it sure humbled me real quick. So I decided to, uh, see, I'm a quick study now. I decided to pull out some of that old AA lingo. Because it's real impressive when you're sitting in a small group and, and the uh, treatment coordinator or a counselor or whatever asks you, Glenn, what are you going to do? And I pulled that thing back out from, from wherever I found it and I said, I'm just going to let go and let God. Or maybe a few days later we'd be sitting in a small group and it's my turn on the hot seat and I'd just say, I'm just going to turn it over. <laughs> well, I, based, on, based on whipping out that AA lingo, I worked my way up the treatment center ladder. Uh, here comes awards day and I'm in, it's my third week in treatment, here comes awards day and boy, I got my chest, I got my chest stuck out because I know something's good about to happen. I got all these expectations and all this kind of stuff, and they gave me the Male Representatives Award. I'm now Captain AA. <laughs> uh, three weeks sober in a, in a treatment center, and I'm the male representative of our treatment center. I'm a circuit speaker in training. I know it already. And, 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 and they didn't like that too well. But what happened for me in treatment was I was sitting in the day room one time, and in she walked. And she was a newcomer there, and I was an old-timer in treatment. (laughs) And they had told me that I had to pass it on. Well, they frowned on that stuff in treatment. They frowned on that stuff. They kicked me out of treatment three weeks, three weeks in treatment. They kicked me out. said, don't come back. So I went from being Captain AA to a lowly little newcomer. And, and all you old-timers, y'all, God bless y'all, y'all told me that I was the most important person in the meeting, but I didn't feel like it. I went from being male representative of Alcoholics Anonymous, busted down to a newcomer. Oh, God. But... Uh, and you guys told me, Glenn, if you're going to stay sober, son, you've got to do something different. You've got to do something different. Kind of reminds me of the story of the traveling salesman. 
drinking all the time, going out working, drinking all the time, going back to the hotel. Finally, it just wears into his job, and he can't do it, and he goes to treatment. And uh, so he gets out of treatment, goes to a few meetings, and finally gets cleared to go back to work. And one of the things that the old-timers have been telling him, you've got to do something different if you're going to stay sober. So he goes out on, on call that day, has a real good day on the job, goes back to the hotel, and there are two pretty girls sitting on the bed and a bottle of whiskey sitting on the table. And he said, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. So he goes in the bathroom, he gets on his knees and he prays, and, and, and he, he stands up and he says, I've got to do something different, I've got to do something different, I've got to do something different. So uh, he, comes out of the, he comes out of the bathroom and he says, girls, the old-timers in AA have told me I've got to do something different. So I can't drink that whiskey, and one of you is going to have to leave. <laughs> See, I thought that would go over better now. <laughs> but uh, I, I hung around Alcoholics Anonymous. One thing, I, in a way, I loved you old-timers when I got here, and in a way, I hated you. Now, in my home group, when I, when I got sober, they used to have their little own amen corner. You know, they wouldn't, let, they wouldn't let none of the new people sit next to them. They'd just stare across the room at you and all that kind of stuff. And I thought, okay, I need to make friends with the old-timers. I went bouncing up to one of them one time, and I said, I'm expecting a miracle. He said, I bet you are. <laughs> and, uh, and God bless. I, I remember one old-timer, he, he told me, he said, Son, I want to tell you something. I'm just using you for entertainment is all. That's the truth. I remember sitting in a meeting one time, and this old guy was sitting there, and he had a, he had a cigar in his hand, and he just sat there, and he stared across the top of those horn-rimmed glasses, and that cigar never moved. And at the end of that meeting, the ashes on the end of that cigar was about six, six inches long because he was serene, my God. And that's the truth. That's the truth. Um, but I finally saw the attraction of the program. Finally saw the attraction of the program. She was blonde. And I was hoping that they had told her she had to give it away to keep it, but, uh, but the old-timers had got to her ahead of time and warned her about me, and I know she was sitting there thinking, what an order, I can't go through with that. I got sober, put the plug in the jug, went to Alcoholics Anonymous meetings, hung out with sober people, did what you sober people told me to do. And I celebrated that first year birthday. My mother came and my mother handed me my first year medallion. And God, I fell in love all over again with Alcoholics Anonymous because you people let me be a part of, and I never was a part of anything. Uh, I mean, you know, I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. I brought a selfish and self-centered guy to you. I mean, I'm selfish and self-centered. I ain't much, but I'm all I think about. He got that. I mean, I go to a funeral and I want to be the corpse. <laughs> if I had some sexual identity issues, I'd probably go to a wedding and want to be the bride. <laughs> but uh, I loved Alcoholics Anonymous when I got here. I mean, it was the only place in the world where they had all the sick women grouped. And I don't know about you guys, but I have an uncanny ability. If you line ten women up against this wall, I'll pick the sickest one every time. I don't know where I learned how to do that. But uh, 
I remember my first conference that I ever went to was the uh, uh, was the International Conference of Young People in AA in 1988 in Nashville, Tennessee. And I held hands with 4,000 people that weekend, and they said the Lord's Prayer, and it was like a spiritual lightning bolt hit me. And I don't know about you guys, but every time to this day, 14 years later, every time I hold hands with you good people and say the Lord's Prayer, I get goosebumps running up and down my spine. And I thank you for that. I thank you for that gift you gave me. Because I think that that was awesome. Um, I remember I was probably about a year and a half sober, and um, I was playing frisbee with some friends of mine in the parking lot, and up she drove, and we were a perfect couple. The rocks in my head fit the holes in hers. <laughs> and uh, we fell in sick on the spot. She wasn't in AA. She's a normal person still this day, not, a, not an alcoholic. And uh, we rocked along for about a year, and then she told me the two, most self, the two most scary words that you could tell a selfish and self-centered alcoholic. She said, I'm pregnant. And I thought, what an order. I can't go through with that. And if you want to know the truth about me, I said some really horrible things to that young lady. And I thought some really horrible thoughts surrounding that situation. And the truth about me is, and I hope I don't lower y'all's standards too much, the truth about me is I've done and said things sober that I said I would never do drunk. Whiskey never was my problem. I'm an insane, lunatic, stoked up, turned out alcoholic when you take the whiskey away from me. And if I'm not living these steps, I'm not living these traditions, I'm not living these concepts, that's what you're going to get. That's the truth about me. Well, having a young girl pregnant is not one of those things you want to run tell your sponsor real quick because you know what he's going to say. You've got to take your time on that one. So the state delegate came to town one night and, and gave a talk. And don't go to your state delegate and ask him the truth about a situation. He told me the truth. We sat in his car that night, and he said, Glenn, I want to ask you a question. Just what kind of damn message are you carrying? God worked through that man's life that night. And I started to go around her, and she was probably, I don't know, she, she was several months sober at the time. And I started to go around her again, and uh, I started to try to be a companion to her, and I started to try to be a father. And, uh, and I ain't good today, I'm just telling you. I'm not great at it. I'm scared to death. They don't come with instructions when the kid, with kids. They don't. And, uh, and my son is 10 today. And he knows where his father is. He knows where his father is doing right now. He knows where he's at, and he's never seen his father drunk. That doesn't mean that he hadn't seen his father be that 800-pound, romping, stomping, untreated alcoholic gorilla in his life because he has. And I've just tried to become more human to him lately in the last probably two or three years. 
I've, I've tried to become less of, less of a God in His mind and become just a man. Just a man. But my, my son and I have stood on top of the world's tallest building and you guys have gave me the gift that to this day my son has told me, Dad, I'm getting tired of going to Disney World. <laughs> he loves it. He wants to move to Florida. I mean, we, we've been down there, I don't know, probably half a dozen times. The first time we went down there on the plane coming back, I said, Dad, I want to move to Florida. I said, Taylor, why is that? He said, well, they don't have schools there. I said, what do you mean they don't have schools there? He said, I didn't see any. And that's the truth for him. And, and, and we get to do stuff like this. And, and in the last year or so, I've had the real privilege and honor of speaking at a lot of places throughout the country. And whenever I stand up behind these podiums, I always say, Taylor, wherever you're at, I love you and I am proud of you and I am proud to be your father. Because he's a good kid. And as a result of Alcoholics Anonymous, his kindergarten teacher said, said, Glenn, if I ever have a son, I'd like for him to be like your son. Thank you, Alcoholics Anonymous. And... Uh, and we had that son, and God, I don't remember her name. Oh, yeah, the plaintiff. And that's it. And that's it. And, and I thank you, Alcoholics Anonymous, because the now in the, I don't know, maybe nine or so years of paying child support, I've been late one time. And I called her and told her I've been in two car wrecks and I've been out of work for a month and I'm going to be late. And she said, okay. And, uh, and, and that's just the truth about it. And, uh, and what it's like today for me, you know, there are a lot of guys here sitting in this room that live in Memphis now that I watch get sober. And boy, I sure was an ass to them. And you know, when you're selfish and self-centered and you're scared to death, that's the kind of stuff you do in Alcoholics Anonymous. And when I live in these steps and these traditions and these concepts, that's the kind of stuff you do in Alcoholics Anonymous. As part of my men's day, I hope I can walk up to those guys and shake their hands and say, it's good to see them. And that sobriety looks good on you now. You know, that's what that is. Uh, that's how I get to, to resolve some of that past, by being a kind and safe individual for those young girls coming to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. We had a girl come into our clubhouse, I don't know, maybe a week or so ago, and she sat down, and I guess she was doing it on purpose, but she had really big spirituality, <laughs> and she was young, and she said, it's really hard right now because I'm going through a divorce and I'm trying to get sober. And I thought, well, this is going to be entertaining to watch this. And it was like a feeding frenzy around there. And it's rough to sit back and watch that. It's rough to sit back and watch that. See, new people coming in this program, and there are people who have done the steps, done the traditions, done, done the 12 concepts, and they're fighting for the people's lives who are just coming in the door. I don't want to drag another one through the hell I've already drunk, through the hell I've already been through. And the truth about me is, I was standing at that clubhouse, standing at our cabinet one day, 
And in walked this woman, and I thought, she's got really big spirituality. And she was blonde. And, uh, and I thought, God, she could be my soulmate. Damn it, what was her name? <laughs> well, we fell in sick on the spot. And we were the Ken and Barbie of Jackson AA. <laughs> sitting on the podium together, uh, sitting on the platform together at conferences. We were the looking good couple. And the truth about me is before I took that young lady as a victim, I probably didn't have effective sponsorship for about two years before that. And I drug her straight into hell sober. And uh, it didn't work. And we split up. And it hurt like hell. And it hurt my pride and it hurt my ego. Um, because for the first time in about seven years in sobriety, she made me feel loved by a woman. And I had not had that since my son's mother. And uh, I was bopping around here just, you know, doing whatever I was doing. Whatever you call that. God, I don't know. But uh, and it didn't work. And uh, it was by far the hardest thing I had ever done staying sober. And uh, and it's hard to be effective and it's hard to be efficient in your life when you're laying in your living room floor, balled up and curled up like a baby, crying uncontrollably. I could not go to the program. My pride wouldn't let me. I could not go to the steps and the traditions and the concepts. And there were two things that kept me alive. The International Conference of Young People and Alcoholics Anonymous and my son. Because I could not stay sober for myself at that time. And I made those 325-mile drives to Louisville to go to those host committee meetings because Icky Paul was going on there and they let me, somebody they'd never met, be a part of their host committee. And, uh, and I was named outreach chairman for that. We elected about 20 people that day and they elected a guy they had never met by unanimous proclamation. And they let me be a part of their committee. And after 9,000 miles on the road and 19,000 miles in the air outreaching that conference, you guys asked me to serve on your advisory council for that, for that conference, and I am honored. I am honored. Uh, I remember talking to a guy one day about that relationship, and he said, yeah, I had something like that happen to me, and when, when she left, my God left. And when she left, I broke into her house and I tried to hang myself sober. And I knew that was the guy that it was time for me to do a fifth step with. It was time to go back to the steps. Because the fellowship and service work did me so much, I had to go back to the steps. And I went down and me and Mark 
Perry did an inventory that day. Three-hour fist step on a one-page inventory. And he said, Glenn, you're so selfish and self-centered that you expect people to build space shuttles of security around you. And all they may have to work with is Lincoln Logs. Well, he kind of helped me to understand that a little bit. And, uh, and I don't know if that's the case. But I'm real grateful for that service work that I mentioned. I started in the last year, just about in the last year or so, I've been in touch with people in six different countries about Alcoholics Anonymous. And at the end of my drinking, I was lucky to get off the couch. Thank you, Alcoholics Anonymous. And I started email correspondence, and then we started chat sessions with a young lady in New Zealand, and I promised I wasn't trying to pick her up. And uh, we... Thank you. If y'all didn't hear it, this young lady down here clapped because, she, because I said I wasn't trying to pick her up. So. But uh, she said, we don't have a, a young people's conference in New Zealand. And so I sent her a bunch of literature and a bunch of documentation on Ikipa, and by the grace of God and, and by help of the people in New Zealand, come next spring, those young people, they're going to have a young people's conference. And I thank you, Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and she sent me an email probably about a month or so ago, and she said, Glenn, thank you very much for your spark, because if it weren't for you, I would have simply sat around and thought about it for years. So if you have those sober dreams, chase them, whatever they are. Because I'm having to fight through that stuff that says, I don't belong to be here. I'm having to fight through that stuff right now. And as a result of doing all that outreach work, I got to travel all over the country. And as I stood at the foot of the, uh, of the Atlantic Ocean, my God speaks to me whenever I'm out there at the ocean. And He said, Glenn, all this water that I have before you represents how much love I have to give you. Can't you give one grain of sand worth of love to yourself? And I stood and the feet of the Pacific Ocean in Los Angeles. And my God, true story, my God said, Glenn, all this, uh, all this water that I have to give you here represents how much forgiveness I have to give to you. Can't you give one grain of sand worth of forgiveness to yourself and to them about that stuff? And as I stood in San Diego, my God spoke to me. And I had this little token, a little chip that we have. It's symbolic of a resentment. And I picked that resentment up because it was just eating my lunch day in and day out, month after month. And my God, I held that resentment chip up and I looked at with the ocean in the background. And my God said to me, he said, Glenn, all this water is symbolic of how much power I have. And to me, all of your issues, your resentments, all of that stuff is as big as one grain of sand to me. The last time I saw that resentment chip, that sucker was flying in the Pacific Ocean.
And I hope and pray, dear God, that that girl that I drug into the mouth of hell sober will find it in her heart one of these days to forgive me because I am a sick alcoholic sometimes. And I know I love her. Kitty I know I love her. Maurice, I know I love her. And uh, I hope so. You know what, I, I need to wrap this stuff up because you guys have been real patient, but y'all are start to, starting to get that glossy-eyed look. <laughs> but uh, you guys have been real awesome. And if you hadn't seen my slippers, come on up and see my slippers because they, they remind me that uh, I've still got an animal inside of me. And, and, uh, and, and I hope that I haven't lowered the standard for this weekend too much. And I'm really looking forward to hearing Michael talk tonight and really looking forward to hearing Don talk tomorrow. And the last thing that I always say, whether it be from a podium or at my home group or at any group that I attend in Alcoholics Anonymous, I have talked far too long and said far too little. Thank you for having me here in this.